civilians or politicians. You're listening to the news on RTHK. The weak global economy. Easy. The volatility and the upswings and the moods. Sort of a deflationary phenomenon again. Money for nothing. Good morning and welcome back to Money for Nothing with me, Renita Malhotra-Hora. Oil drops to a new five-and-a-half-year low, U.S. stocks plummet for a fifth day, and the Shenzhen Exchange formulates a plan to connect with Hong Kong, similar to the Hong Kong-Shanghai Stock Connect. Today, we'll look at whether China is now a debt story rather than a growth story. Fraser Howey of New Edge Financial talks about rising corporate loan defaults and the outcome of Tuesday's Judgment Day for mainland China's cities as authorities decided on which debts they would support. Next, we'll talk with uh, Martin Henneke of the Henley Group about the price discrepancy between company shares listed in Hong Kong and Shanghai. And we'll also have a pre-market assessment of the day's share trading in Hong Kong with Dickie Wong of the Kingston Financial Group. And Stuart Oldcroft of City Investor Services is back on the job as guest host. Good morning, Stuart. Good morning, Renita. Do you have a good holiday? I had a great holiday. I'm very happy to be back. But the question I want to ask you is, did you think you would return to a new year marked by even lower oil prices? Um, actually, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so you've been thinking about this for the last two weeks, have you? Well, I've been telling you about it for the last two months, I think. You have. <laughs> but indeed. oil prices have been going down, yes, and that's a trend. Um, but I, you know, I read this morning down to $48. Wow. Yes, indeed. The West Texas mm. uh, price is right now just above $48, and Brent crude oil mm. is currently at $51.16. I tell you, another day, another new low. The cost of a barrel of oil is now close to a new five-and-a-half-year low as concerns over supply drive the prices down again. Abhishek Deshpande is an oil markets analyst at London-based Natixis, and he believes that we have entered a new era for oil prices. It is a new era because we have seen from the new strategy that we that came up from OPEC members where they decided not to cut back production in order to make sure that all OPEC members comply as well as non-OPEC producers such as US and Russia, which produce as much as Saudi Arabia, should also scale back. So it is almost a new era where countries need to scale back together if they want to really balance the markets. So in the short term, yes, we could see prices going down uh, closer to 40 levels that we saw in 2009. So still the big question from everyone is, is have we bottomed out? Fadel Ghait is the managing director uh, for energy at Oppenheimer and Company, and he sees oil prices going even lower. Basically, we have a perfect storm where every factor that can bring oil prices down is taking place. We have weak demand, we have uh, more supply, we have geopolitics at the, the very high level now. And also we have a war for market share. The Saudis basically are setting a line in the sand saying that we are not going to lose market share to any other producer because they want to be the primary source for North America, for the U.S. basically, and for Asia. And they are not going to take it play second fiddle to Russia or Iran or any other place. A lot of people say that they want to shut down our share production. I would say this is the backdrop. This is not the main 
main characters. The main characters are the Iranians and the Russians. Saudi Arabia is fighting for survival. And basically, they have the ability to, to withstand uh, lower oil prices for a lot longer than any of the other countries. Uh, in a year from now, uh, Russia would probably have no foreign reserves left. Uh, the Iranians are going to go from a bad economic situation to a worse. So therefore, the pressure is going to be on them. What do you think, Stuart? Uh, do you think that Russia and Iran are the main characters? Well, clearly, they're the, they're the ones that are suffering most. Uh, no, the main character is clearly Saudi Arabia. That is leading um, the OPEC uh, decision-making. It continues to supply. And, um, and, and for as long as Saudi Arabia continues to put the money uh, or, or to put out more oil, uh, that's going to keep weaker prices. You know, if Saudi Arabia suddenly said, well, it's going to cut production, then you'd start to see oil prices going back up again. So when does this actually bottom out? I know well, it's a question we've asked again and again. Yes, but, uh, and, and, and there is no again. answer to that. I think the, I mean, your your, your um, piece there just uh, highlighted the fact that we don't know, uh, it, as it's come down by more than fifty percent now. Uh, it, it can come down a lot more. I think uh, some of us are old enough to remember when prices of oil were down in the twenties. But uh, you know, we, we we probably see somewhere around about the forty dollar mark as being the low point, but. Whether it will get there in the next month or or whatever, I just don't know. I can't tell you that. And what about Saudi's motive? I mean, we've discussed everything from their wanting to drive the shale suppliers out of business to their wanting to put pressure on, uh, you know, the surrounding countries that are suffering, the Russias and the Irans. What do you think? Well, clearly Saudi Arabia has more oil than anybody else and it continues to pump it and maybe it's got uh, uh, more reserves than anybody else. Uh, so, yes, it has the ability and the power with which to do all this. What's its motive? Anybody's guess. Maybe it is doing these things in in some way to support the US and punishing Russia. Um, I, I can't tell you that. That's a political issue. All right. Well, U.S. stocks ended lower for a fifth session as data showing slower growth in the U.S. service sector added worry to the oil price decline. The Dow Jones Industrial Average fell 130 points to 17,371. The S&P 500 lost 0.9% to 2,002. And the Nasdaq Composite dropped 1.3% to 4,592. The S&P 500's losing streak was its longest in about 13 months. Bill Gross of Janus Capital says that the good times are over for many markets and that asset prices will fall this year as record low interest rates fail to restore sufficient economic growth. Now, of course, his view is supported by many analysts. David Costin, who is the chief U.S. equity strategist at Goldman Sachs, says that, yes, indeed, the rally is now running out of steam. Well, I think the trajectory of the U.S. equity market for this year is likely to see a lower trajectory at the beginning of the year. We see a rise towards the middle part of the year and a fade at the end of the year. And if I kind of went through each of those items, right now the sentiment indicator that we use looking at futures positioning data is at an extreme of 100. It's been there for basically the past month. And that would suggest over the next four to six weeks, we would look for a pullback in the market. In fact, that is what we've seen already at the very beginning of this year, something in order of uh, 2 to 4% over, over that period of time. So that's a near-term tactical positioning in the market likely to go lower. If you look at the dr- broad trajectory, you mentioned some of the ISM data. Basically, the economy is growing. In our view, the economy is growing at over 3% for this year, and earnings will be rising. And as a result of that, 
anticipate the market basically moving higher to the middle part of the year. And then as we look towards the latter half of 2015, we'll have the Fed hike. And as a result of that, likely to get a P.E. compression. At the end of the day, you end at a 2100 level, which is only modestly above that, looking at roughly 5% total return, including dividends. But Vladim Zlatnikov, who is the chief market strategist at Alliance Bernstein, expects the fall in U.S. equities to be short-lived. I think the sell-off will be short-lived. I think the uh, lower energy prices is a tax cut. I do think it's stimulative to the economy. I would not expect a significant appreciation this year. I do think as we go through the year, you will see dramatic volatility. Fed is going to try to uh, communicate that they're not going to raise rates. At the same time, they want to assure you that the recovery is strong enough. All that communication will is prone to misinterpretation. All right, let's bring in Dickie Wong of the Kingston Financial Group. Uh, he joins us now by phone. Good morning, Dickie. Good morning. So, Dickie, uh, the, the word on the street is that the rally in the U.S. is over. Do you agree? Well, I think they um, need some kind of further correction. Like 18 times PE for the S&P 500 index is simply too high. So, five consecutive days of um, pullback, I think this, this time for the, also the Chinese equity to pull back furthermore. Because as we all know, after 40-50% gain of major indexes, and also and valuation now in Asia is not cheap anymore, uh, and also just the sound of everywhere from U.S. and also from Asia, oil prices, and also political uncertainty in uh, Greece. So I, I, I do think that um, um, the U.S. stock market needs further pullback, like um, the headset, because the S&P 500 index already dropped below 50 days moving average. But I, I won't say that the bull market is over because um, the earnings are still uh, good and also the economy, especially in U.S., is improving. So just a pullback, just a correction. Um, the bull market is still there. So, Dickie, how long do you think we continue to see this sell-off before we see signs of a bull market again? Well, I will think that, um, like S&P 500, maybe um, another 3 to 5% um, correction is needed uh, after the recent gain. Because as we all know uh, from the top of the, the, the historical high, even if it drops 10%, it's just like a, a small correction. It's nothing big deal. So, yeah, like 3 to 5% for S&P. Dickie, this is Stuart. Um, if you see this um, strength of the U.S. dollar coming through, do you think that will help to um, improve the amount of consumption going on in the U.S.? And clearly, cost of imports will come, be coming down. So, w w won't that be a, a stimulus factor to the economy in the U.S.? Well, this is pretty dilemma, but uh, it will also hurt exports um, for U.S. As we all know, um, export is not a big deal for the U.S. economy. Consumption uh, remains the key issues of the success of the U.S. economy. But um, if the U.S. dollars keep on rebounding, uh, keep on gaining, it's not definitely not a very big good thing. So I will expect that um, not only the next two meetings, uh, I, I think Janet um, Yellen will put a hold on the hike of the interest rate, or I mean the federal. Uh, so how long do you think the U.S. dollar can continue to strengthen? Most of um, the year? There's no, there's no question asked because, as you say, uh, as we all know, the Eurozone, Japan, and also along with China, uh, yeah, they, they introduced all kind of measures to loosen the monetary policy. So definitely U.S. dollars will remain 
um, just strong in the whole year. But um, after the recent game, uh, I think, and also, just, just, I mean, the U.S. stock market pulled back a little bit um, more than people expect. So I think the strength um, will just hold on yeah. for uh, now. All right, Dickie, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Dickie Wong of the Kingston Financial Group. Let's take a quick look at uh, market numbers for this morning. The Nikkei is down 70 points to 16,812. Australia's ASX index is down 33 points to 5,312. And Seoul's Kospi is also down uh, three points to 1,878. In currencies, uh, one euro is currently worth 1.18, 1.18 US dollars. One US dollar is currently worth 118 yen and one pound sterling buys you 11 Hong Kong dollars and 73 cents. Gold is currently at $1,216 per ounce and Brent crude oil, as we said earlier, still at $51.10. We'll be back to talk more about uh, the Hong Kong Shanghai Stock Connect and whether it has worked. That's right after this message. Building management companies are responsible for implementing mosquito preventive measures in the public areas of buildings. Inspections must be carried out at least weekly. To prevent mosquitoes breeding in stagnant water, dispose of refuse properly, cover water tanks tightly, puncture anti-bump tires in car parks and clear drains, prevent Japanese encephalitis and dengue fever. Act now. The time is now almost 8.17 a.m. And moving on to local news, the Hong Kong Exchanges and Clearing says that its existing trading link uh, with uh, Shanghai could be expanded to other markets in the future, like Shenzhen. But any expansion would be subject to approval by governments and regulators in both markets. The Investment Funds Association says that local fund managers are keen to see a new trading link with Shenzhen. The association is also calling for the lifting of trading rules on the existing link with Shanghai. Its chairman, Bruno Lee, says that many fund managers are planning to invest via the link and that further expansion of the landmark program would indeed be useful. We do want to further expand the investment universe and not limit to the Shanghai uh, listed and index constituent stock. So we would uh, like to see in the future the uh, Stock Connect scheme to be further expand to include Shenzhen uh, Stock Exchange and also not limit to the index constituent stock and even to the extent of not limit to uh, only equity but including fixed income market as well. So after a strong rally last year, China A shares are considerably more expensive than their counterpart H shares. The premium on dual listed shares has risen to 29% as of last week. That means that the gap is likely to be corrected either by a drop in yuan denominated A shares or gains in their Hong Kong counterparts. Let's bring in Martin Henneke, who is the chief economist at the Henley Group. Good morning, Martin. Good morning. So, Martin, what is your view on this? Uh, are we going to see a drop uh, through yuan-denominated A-shares or by gains in Hong Kong? Well, um, a lot of people obviously are asking about the China market now because it has become a hot topic with the, with the big rise that we have seen um, last year. So, firstly, I just want to comment briefly on the mainland market. Um, uh, 
with regards to the question of whether that's a bubble now um, or not. And the first thing to note is that the market is still about 50% lower than it was at the previous high. And more importantly, on a price-to-earnings ratio basis, it's uh, more than uh, 50% lower now. We are, uh, we are looking at a P.E. ratio of 12 that's um, still below the global average. So I don't really think um, that's a bubble yet. But um, as you just mentioned, the equivalent Hong Kong-listed age shares um, do trade at an over 30% discount now to the Asia. So if one does want to go um, gain exposure um, to China but is a bit worried whether or not the mainland market might have gotten overheated, well, um, there's a way to still buy essentially the same companies but at a, at a price that has not seen those increases yet. So um, also if you're looking at the age share market right now um, compared with global indices, it's 40% lower on a PE basis. Uh, and uh, at price book ratios of 1.2. So that's very, very undervalued. So my bet would be rather on the eight shares coming up to answer your question than seeing a huge correction in the A-share market. Now, there's a lot of focus, though, on the A-share market. Uh, when you talk about mainland equities, you know, today's newspaper reports, today's SEMP reports that so far only 13 fund houses or 31% of the respondents have actually used the scheme over the past two months. What is the biggest obstacle? Well, firstly, um, let me say, I don't think it's just only all about the Hong Kong um, Shanghai Stock Connect scheme, the rise that we have seen in the mainland. Actually, it seems to me that this was perhaps one of the triggers that caused the, the, the rally in the mainland market. But it's actually mostly local retail investors, just like we have seen in, in 2006, 2007, the run there in, in the market that's started to drive that again. You see the opening of accounts, of stock trading accounts soaring again within, within the mainland. And I think that's actually the main driver. At, at the very moment rather than the stock connect. Um, anyway, having said that, yes, mostly it has been uh, the, the money that has been using the stock connect has mostly been going one way, which is into the mainland. But again, having, having said that, um, with these huge discounts that we see now in the local age shares, um, it, sh- it should be noted that you also get 30% higher dividends by buying them. And ultimately, um, the, the mainlanders may be waking up to that sooner or later. All that um, it, it might take is a few stories in major magazines, major newspapers or blogs um, that people realize um, this, this big discount and money then suddenly could start flowing the other way. I mean, initially, even um, um, the Stock Connect response into the mainland was relatively muted, relatively weak. So it could pick up at any time both ways. Northbound traffic has been clearly so much bigger in volume than southbound traffic. But your argument is that if H shares are that much cheaper relative to their equivalent in the mainland market, that would make it really attractive for mainland institutions to be buying H shares. Um, but we've not seen any great evidence of that so far. Do you think that will change? Yeah, that's that's basically my my point. Uh, it could be institutions on the mainland. Mm-hmm. It could be uh, retail investors, and I think it could well change. Even if it does not change, though, um, as as a global investor, firstly, it's still relatively easier, you can say, to buy into the Hong Kong market, and there's. Um, seemingly at least uh, a bigger level of due diligence and investor protection, etc., etc. But also, if you're a medium to long-term investor, uh, dividends should be one thing that that should form part of your investment consideration. And if you get a 30% plus higher dividend on those same, essentially same companies, you can, you know, afford to wait a little bit for um, those discrepancies. um, But what's been obvious about the way in which stock connectors work so far is that where there are ready-made vehicles, mainly mutual funds, QFI funds, that sort of thing, then 
they have been users, and that's been the northbound. Within China, however, there are no ready-made vehicles yet for investing directly into Hong Kong. And that's why uh, the Shanghai Stock Exchange was very keen, uh, and the CSRC together, to get some Hong Kong uh, vehicles set up. But there has been a fairly muted demand for those so far. So really, is, should it be down to those fund companies to promote the idea of Hong Kong being cheap? Well, you know, I'm I'm not here to promote either way. You know, that's not really my concern. I just only know that exactly the point that you are making. You know, we have not yet seen any of this happening the other mm. way, etc., etc., etc. And this is slow to pick up. This is exactly why you have got this great opportunity in the mm. Asia. And I don't know, you know, who exactly will be the driver of a potential flow the other way. Mm. Um, but I think eventually the discount will narrow, and I do think that this is a good arbitrage opportunity now. In any case, exactly. Thank you. All right, Martin, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Martin Henneke. He is the chief economist at the Henley Group. Well, China now uh, may be a debt story rather than a growth story. This is according to analysts out there. China is undergoing a liquidity squeeze as some property developers struggle to meet their debt payments and are technically in default. While local government bonds, uh, excuse me, local government bond issuers face judgment day as authorities decide on which debt they will support. We're joined now by Fraser Howie. He is the senior director at New Edge Financial and the author of Red Capital and privatizing China. Good morning, Fraser. Good morning, Steve. Thanks for joining us on Money for Nothing. And uh, can you give us more insight as to uh, what the outcome is of yesterday's Judgment Day in China? Well, basically what yesterday does is it formalizes what the Minister of Finance has been trying to do for some time, which is basically get a better handle on local government debt in China. Post the 2009 stimulus, China turned on the credit taps. A lot of that credit fell to local governments and banks to, to, to create, as it were. And local governments, which are not directly allowed to borrow, went out and set up vehicles called local government financing vehicles, borrowed money and built infrastructure, basically. And the trouble is that those numbers have ballooned to something like 20 trillion renminbi of debt. And the fear is that that's all going to come back onto the government's balance sheet, the central government's balance sheet, and the Ministry of Finance doesn't like that. So it's trying to basically bring some discipline, much-needed discipline, to a market that's been out of control for a number of years. And uh, are we going to see that discipline come into shape? Well, that's very difficult. The, the real problem is it's, it's basically, you know, horses and bolted and, you know, indoors. It's, it's the old problem. The debt's already out there. They've already borrowed. They've already poured the concrete. And you can't make those underlying projects productive. You may be able to try and extend some discipline going forward. But the difficulty there is as well, and this is no news at all, that the Chinese economy is slowing. So you're trying to exert discipline at the worst possible time. You've already got a slowing economy, which is going to put further pressure on debt servicing. And yet at the same time, you've already got this huge stock of debt that's out there. So this, I don't, I don't think that necessarily leads to immediate crisis. But what it is, is a millstone around the, the local government's neck and ultimately the central government's neck, which means that growth is going to continue to slow and China is going to be in a rut for a number of years yet. Uh, Fraser Stewart here. If you're seeing, uh, as you're highlighting debt, of course, a lot of that is as a result of building property that didn't uh, get used straight away. And that's been um, sort of impacted by the limitations on property ownership. Do you think there's any chance of changing that property ownership restrictions um, to become much freer? 
Well, I think that's already starting to happen, Stuart, isn't it? Mm. We're already seeing efforts by the government to take off some of these restrictions. Um, and so that will, you know, cushion the, the slowdown to some extent. But you still have a problem here that a lot of that, there's simply too much overcapacity in many industries, not just in property. And that there's also a question that so much of the investment in property has been speculative. Yes, Why exactly. are you buying properties when you don't feel they're going to go up anymore? That's mm. a problem mm. there. You know, of course, the real irony here is that the, the restrictions on property were to try and to control prices to make property affordable. Now, four years later, we have a government who's trying to lift the restrictions to get prices to go back up again. <laughs> well, it's ironic, isn't it, really? Sort of a lot of gambling back yeah. and forth to see uh, w- which way will sort of shake out best. Mm. Fraser, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Fraser Howie. He is a senior director at New Edge Financial and the author of Red Capitalism and Privatizing China. Well, uh, one answer to, uh, you know, China's uh, debt will might be online banking. Uh, This is something that has just about taken root on the mainland. WeBank is China's first online-only bank and the first of a crop of new private banks that have been given licenses by the government, set up by Tencent, one of the country's leading technology companies. The FD's China finance correspondent, Gabrielle Wildau, explains why these new banks have been established. For years, China's financial system has been dominated by large state-owned banks. And that worked fine for a while when the main task of the financial system was to funnel large amounts of capital to large state-owned companies and to local governments for infrastructure projects. But now China is trying to transition its economy to a more innovative model, a model that requires a larger contribution from small businesses, and that requires financial institutions that can do a better job of routing capital to the companies that are going to use it the most productively. So the hope is that privately owned banks are going to do a better job of granting loans to smaller companies that economists say are more productive and are better at producing the kind of goods and services that China wants to do more of. What we've seen over the weekend is the first private bank start operations, and there'll be five more under a pilot project that'll be uh, up and running later this year. What do you think, Stuart? Is this the answer that China has been waiting for? Uh, no. No. <laughs> um, it's just one of many different pieces in this big jigsaw that China uh, presents to the world. Uh, it's a good idea, and I think um, what we've seen in China is a great deal of acceptance of online distribution in different ways. Alibaba uh, uh, has been the, the forefront of that. Tencent is is very much up there. And, and the acceptance is there for that purpose. All right, excellent. Okay, Stuart, in 10 seconds or less, besides oil, what what should be we, we be watching for this week? U.S. currency. US. It's uh, continuing to strengthen. That looks good from a Hong Kong perspective. All right, Stuart. Thank you so much for You're joining welcome. us this morning. That's Stuart Altcroft, Senior Advisor at City Investor Services and our regular Wednesday co-host. Quick look at the numbers before we depart. The Nikkei is up 8 points to 16,891. Australia's ASX index is down 30 points to 5,315. And Seoul's Kospi is up just slightly less than one one point, excuse me, to 1,883. A quick look at the weather forecast for today. It'll be cloudy with rather low visibility. Light winds at first strengthening from the north with one or two rain patches in the morning. The temperature right now is 19 degrees Celsius and the relative humidity is 92%. Thank you for joining us this morning on Money for Nothing. I'm Renita Malhotra-Hora. And now it's time for the news with Samantha Butler. 
The government is set to launch the second round of its consultation on political reform later today when the Chief Secretary, Carrie Lam, addresses the Legislative Council. The government will ask people for their views on how to achieve universal suffrage for the 2017 Chief Executive election under the political framework set out by Beijing. Altis Wong reports. Beijing's reform framework announced in August doesn't appear to leave much wriggle room on how the next chief executive can be chosen. The central and SAR government say the decision is final and all candidates must be approved by half the members of a future nominating committee. The government is likely to ask whether a lower bar should initially be set for potential CE candidates, but they will still need to pass the final 50% approval barrier before the winner is paid by Hong Kong's 3 million-plus voters. Pan-Democrats say this is unacceptable and have repeatedly vowed to veto such a rigorous pre-screening mechanism. In the United States, the newly re-elected Speaker of the House of Representatives, John Boehner, has said